You're listening to the 66. It's a podcast where we go through Whoa. the 66 books of the Bible. You're moving a little slow this morning. Well, our bumper music is so good. That you wanted it's to give it a little to, space. Yeah, you want to give a little space, some easy listening. Half the people that listen to this have us on fast forward times four anyway. So the slower we talk. Well, it, it appears that something is in space right now, but it's not our bumper music. <laughs> Thanks for that. A, you're um, listening to... Uh, <laughs> what is this called again? The 66 Podcast. We study the Bible, and today we are in our final episode on the pastoral epistles, which is made up of Timothy and Titus. Um, and we are going to wrap it up with chapter 3 of Titus. So last week we did our first full episode on a chapter from Titus in chapter 2. Uh, we covered chapter 1 back in an episode on Timothy when we talked about elders and deacons. Um, so this week we're going to close everything off dealing with the pastoral epistles. And when we get to the final section, uh, if we have a little bit of time, we'll just talk a little bit like we like to do at the end of every series, we'll talk a little bit about our personal opinions on the study. You know, not right. like ranking Bible books in order of importance or worth, but just kind of giving our opinions on what we enjoyed about it, what we uh, notes for further study. But before we get there, Drew has our reading for today. Right, right. So before I do that, I want to point out. Something that has been said, you know, I don't think this thought is original with me, but Titus chapter 3 may be the best summary of the Christian faith in the entire Bible. I mean, when when you look at it, it has all these things. I jotted some of them down. The peril of sin, the grace of God, the role of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our salvation. The gospel plan of salvation is here. Hope and eternal life is here. The Great Commission is here. The Christian's duty to do good works. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff, and this is a really short chapter, only 15 verses. So there's a lot packed in, as it is usually the case with Paul's letters, and I don't think we're going to have time to detail each verse. Instead, because it's such a good summary, we're going to think of it this way in terms of Christianity being achieved at some point in the history, affirmed and amplified by disciples of Christ today. So achieved, affirmed, amplified. It's one of those outlines that, you know, every word starts with the same letter. Maybe it's helpful to memorize um, the contents of this chapter that way. So we start with Christianity achieved. In other words, um, you know, how was it it brought about? And that begins verse 3, where Paul says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, uh, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, you know, verse 5 says, He saved us. That's the Christianity achieved. Mm -hmm. But then, um, if you back up to verse 3, Paul explains what we've been saved from. Uh, He uses words like foolishness, disobedience. He says we were led astray. In other words, the idea of confusion um, slaves to various passions and pleasures, addiction, uh, passing our days in malice and envy, bitterness, uh, hated by others and hating one another. To me, that's the most memorable part of that list, hatred. Uh, yes. So he tells us what, you know, the achievement is salvation, but he doesn't just say that. He tells us what we are saved from. He reminds us of our past life mm-hmm. to build gratitude. And then, in verse 5, he turns to why God saved us. So, he again, he's not just saying you're saved, and he's not just saying you're saved from certain things, but in addition to that, he explains why God saved us. 
He says it's not because of our righteousness, verse 5, but because of the, the nature of God. His goodness or kindness has been mentioned. His loving kindness, an interesting word that comes from the Greek phil- philanthropia. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you've heard of philanthropy. That's the word here for loving kindness. And because of his mercy. That's why God saved us. Not due to any merit. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We say this all the time. Um, our sins have separated us from God. Uh, we can cannot claim any achievement. The achievement is God's. He saved us because of his uh, nature. And then, um, after telling us from what we are saved and why we are saved, he tells us by what means we are saved, and that is the washing of regeneration, which clearly, to me, denotes baptism, Mm -hmm. and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And those are two terms we are definitely coming back to when we go to section two, when we start thinking about things. Yeah. But for now, I think that's a, a brief, you know, explanation of the first part of this, the historical achievement of our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, so kind of just the story of the gospel. Yeah, and we've seen it retold many times in Timothy and Titus, Mm -hmm. which has been a really good thing um, for me to see it brought up in fresh ways. You know, devotionally, it it really uh, is something that brings comfort and understanding as well. But now let's talk about verse 8 when he gets into the idea that Christianity needs to be affirmed. It's been achieved. It's our responsibility to affirm it. I get that word from verse 8 where he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Uh, Insist in the ESV is translated affirm constantly in the King James Version, or insist strenuously. Uh, Another translation says, Speak on these matters with absolute certainty. So it's a message to Titus that, you know, now that you know what God has done for you, what he has achieved for you, you as a Christian have a responsibility to affirm that, to insist Mm -hmm. on it. And uh, you don't do it with pride. Uh, You study. You speak to others about it. You learn it yourself. You spend a lot of time in prayer. It requires boldness. But you stand up and you... you, um, it's not just practicing what you preach, it's preaching what you practice mm-hmm. and not being afraid to do it. Yeah. And the last thing then in verse 8 is Christianity amplified. So when we say amplifying, um, it's not just affirming, but in the actions of your life, you amplify the message in your heart and on your tongue. So good works comes up again, as it has frequently in the book of Titus. I think we saw it mentioned a couple of times in chapter 2. Here we go again in chapter 3 on good works. Uh, So verse 8, I'll read the whole thing this time. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so affirm these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. These are the things that amplify the message. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he says in verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so to help cases of urgent need, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So it's like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the amplification of Christianity. So, uh, you know, it's a short chapter. I don't have a whole lot more to say in terms of outlining it or reading it, but uh, we obviously skipped a few things, um, but they all tie together. Christianity has been achieved by Jesus on the cross through the grace of God. Christianity should be affirmed by those who believe it verbally uh, and then also amplified by our lives, practically speaking. And so uh, that that's Titus chapter 3. Okay, so we have read. Now it's time to think. 
Right. Right. We're gonna think hard. Uh, there's on the count of three. <laughs> yeah. We'll start thinking. One, two, three. Ouch. Okay. So Titus chapter three <laughs> has a lot of stuff to think about, but we're gonna pick. Sorry, we're gonna pick two things in particular. Really, one thing that breaks down into two things. Right. Um, Titus three five. Y- yeah. Kind of yeah. sorta. Right. Um, this we're gonna focus on this, and you'll see why. We hope we don't bore you to death talking about the same thing for so long, but you'll see why we need to. In verse 5, he's talking about what happens when, like you worded it earlier, when Christianity is achieved, you know, what Jesus has done. Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Then he tells us how, so we have the why and part of the how, but here's more. He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And as you might imagine, there's a lot, there has been a lot of ink spilt over that little phrase, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What exactly yeah. does that mean? How well, does before that play we get into salvation? Before we get into what it means, let me share a few parallel passages that are interesting. I, I mean, I guess it's not that much of a surprise that you would find a parallel to this in another letter that Paul wrote because same author but when he's speaking of Christ in the church in the context of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 Paul says in Ephesians 5 26 that he might sanctify her talking about the uh, church that he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word okay So in Titus 3.5, you have the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Same author is writing in Ephesians, and he says, the washing of water with the Word. I'll come back to that in a minute. But there's another parallel in the ministry of Jesus where he says to Nicodemus in uh, John 3.23, no, not not John 3.23, John 3.5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so water and the Spirit. I mean, that's what we have here, right? Water and the Spirit. Yep. Just with a little more explanation. So those are two interesting parallel passages that already tell us a little bit about what's going on. Uh, For instance, let's take one phrase at a time. So the washing of regeneration, what could that mean? Now, somebody might say, well, that's a Jewish ceremonial washing, or that's a pouring out, you know, some kind of water ritual. I think the meaning is really obvious for anyone who really wants to understand it. He's talking about baptism here. I mean, that yeah. the term that he uses for washing is lutron, which can refer to a bath or the washing that occurs in the bath. So we're not talking about sprinkling or pouring something out of a pitcher, but this is like a pool of water, a baptistry of water, if you want to put it that way, where uh, enough water for immersion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know what other, you know, I know people try to avoid this and there's a motive behind that, to say that baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Mm-hmm. If we can establish that the washing here is baptism, then we have yet another passage, and I say another because there are a lot that are plainer than this about the necessity of baptism for salvation. But we have another passage here that gives undeniable evidence that you must be baptized in order to be saved, because it's not just the washing, but it's the washing of regeneration. Yeah. Regeneration meaning new life. You know, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Second Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen. That kind of new life. Yeah, that word regeneration really means a new beginning. Um, it has. You would recognize one of the words. It's a compound word in Greek, and one of the words is Genesis. Um, so it's a new beginning or beginning again is what that term literally means. In the NIV, it says it's a it's a rebirth. It's like you said, it's this idea yeah. of a new life, something brand new. And 
there's nothing else in the New Testament that matches up. It, it just doesn't seem like Paul, off the top of his head, is going to come up with something uh, that would be so closely related to baptism, but not actually baptism. Because Romans yeah. chapter 6, the whole his whole um, explanation of what baptism is and why you are baptized is for that purpose. He says, as many of us that were baptized into Christ have been crucified with Christ, we've put off the old self, and now we've become something new. Uh, do you not? This is Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, guess what, a newness of life. And then he goes on to talk about how the old self is gone and the new self in Christ has what has come. Um, so, you know, in something somebody might say to this, um, I think it's in John 7. At the end of John 7, water is used as, a, as an image for the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so water, you know, is on record as, as being a figure for the Spirit. Let alone the... The idea that in the very next phrase he's going to bring up something the Spirit does, uh, but maybe they're thinking there it's parallelism. We've got one figure for the Spirit here and another figure for the Spirit here. Um, Everett Ferguson wrote this book, Baptism in the Early Church, that traces baptism through the first five centuries of Christianity. And he made a statement that if this was a figure for the Holy Spirit, it would be the only example in early Christian literature of the bath, the lutron, being used as an analogy of the Spirit. So are we willing to accept that in 500 years, only one person has ever made reference to the Spirit using the word lutron, washing, and uh, he left it so vague that we have to talk about it like we are today to try to figure it out it's pretty plain and simple right in a christian context when you hear the washing of regeneration there's only one thing you can think about yeah where's the water it's in the baptistry yeah washing of regeneration not in every church though but equals baptism if you read christian literature and then someone asks you what's the washing of regeneration i mean you're at least going to put a flyer out there guess and say uh baptism yeah that would be your first guess. Yeah. And I think the most natural interpretation is usually the right one. Not to mention that we have so many of these parallels that I read a moment ago. Let's let's look at John 3 for a second, okay? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and at first Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And then Nicodemus says he doesn't understand what that means. So in verse 5, John uh, Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, first of all, look at the interesting parallel between born or born again in John 3 to mm-hmm. regeneration in Titus 3, 5. Yeah. That's the same thing, right? Born yeah, of so. water, washing of regeneration. Regeneration and the new birth, being born again, same thing. It yeah. has to be. All wrapped up in that discussion of the gospel. Yeah. And what it means yes. to be saved. So, I mean. But then, another more? thing, I've had people tell me that Jesus wasn't talking to Nicodemus about baptism. He was talking to him about some ritualistic cleansing or the spirit or a washing ritual. And yet, when I look at John 3. I'm looking at a chapter that's surrounded by baptism. Like uh, John 3.23 is the one that says that uh, John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River near Anon, or however you say that town, because there was much water there. And then you have a debate over baptism in John 4.1 and 2, where people are saying, you know, Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people now than John's disciples. Mm-hmm. So, every reference to water here in this section of John, I realize that you have the living water of John 7. Uh, in John chapter 4, later on, uh, Jesus tells a woman at the well that if she asked, he could give her living water and she would never die. Yeah, um, I realize that. But right there, close to the context, what you have are references to baptism. 
And like you've been saying, that's what has persisted through the years as a practice of the church. So why are we trying to make it something other than what it is, baptism of regeneration? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the... Given all those factors, I don't know what else you could make that washing refer to. The Christian washing of new life is baptism. Um, So the next little phrase in here... No, wait. Sorry. Wait. (laughs) We got more to say about this Well, I wanted to know if you have ever heard the phrase baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. I have now. Well, reading debate books and things like that through the years and uh, reading some accusations made against Catholics, actually, uh, and having been accused of this myself, I've learned that the phrase has to do with the idea that the water saves so that the that there's some magical properties in the water itself mm-hmm. and it's the water that saves a person and i want to be very clear that when we say baptism baptism is for the remission of sins or baptism is for regeneration baptism is for the new birth we're not saying that the power is in the water correct that whenever you say that people are going to charge you with that and, and, and you know maybe our listeners will hear this one day. Somebody will say, that's baptismal regeneration. And they'll think, what's the big deal about that? Not knowing that they're accusing us of saying that the power is in the water instead of the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So you've never heard that before? I, I just didn't know that was the term attached to it. I've heard yeah, of, but you've heard people say, well, they're true. They're, well, another way to say the water is magical. Yeah, I've heard yeah, that before. He's preaching water salvation. I've yeah. heard that. Too. No. And it's all the same thing. It's, it's just a way to steer the conversation in a different direction than it needs to be in, which is just what did the Bible mean when it said this? Yeah. And you look at the parallel passages, and it's very clear. Yeah. It's obviously something of great importance to the early church, and I don't think the early church thought that it was the water that saves you either. Um, certainly there's the the recognition that what saves you is what Jesus has done, and that's exactly what Paul said in Titus 3. He saved us according to his own mercy. You know, yeah, it's I according get, to you his know, one blood. Of the, it's not he died so we could have magic water that's going to cure our spirits, even though it's water in and of itself. And know, he stresses not because thing. of works that we have done. Yeah. And I think that's where people have a hang-up. They're like, well, baptism is a work that we have done. And Paul says, not because of works that we have done. Yeah. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but if I, if I let somebody baptize me, how is that me doing any work deserving of uh, reward? I mean, yeah. I'm not physically doing anything but putting myself into the arms of somebody else who's lowering me into the water, bringing me back up out of the water. I don't even get out of the water myself. Yeah. The preacher or whoever, he's the one doing that. And then, you know, um, Colossians 2.12 says that baptism is a powerful working of God. It's not attributed mm-hmm. to the works of men. Well, isn't confession a part of part of salvation as well? Yeah. And I think, yeah, of course. I think across the board... Christianity, like in in the most general sense, would agree that confession is a part of salvation, right? Yeah. You have to at least confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And I know across the board that people are going to say you have to you have to live a life that you know that is trying your best to follow God. At that point, if we're getting into well, baptism is a work, and we're not saved by works, so you're telling me confession. Isn't doesn't well, fall belief, into that same category? Even belief is called a work in John yeah. six twenty nine. Um, faith, yeah, it's a work faith, of God. Belief, that would work. be. You could wrap all that. I mean, you could make an argument if you're going to come from that angle and say, "Hey, baptism is a work." You know, you can't tell me that baptism is part of salvation because that's a work. It's something we do. Um, confession would be a work. Yeah, it would be something you do. It snowballs. It's just you just. They, we're choosing our right of passages here, almost, to be a Christian. What makes you a Christian? Well, some people will look at Scripture and say, hey, these are the things Scripture says that make a person a Christian. You know, hearing the Word, believing the Word, 
being baptized for the remission of their sins, confessing, repenting, living a godly life. Those things are what's in the New Testament. Other people say, well, you know, we pray. We, we publicly pray, and that's how we gain access to Christ. Uh, or, well, maybe we, we get voted on, and when we get voted in, that's how we gain access into the body of Christ. Whatever, it's like we've come up with our own different little uh, ideas to get into the club of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But that's so far removed from what we're reading here in Titus about what the gospel is. So it's not like, well, you get into the club if you've been dunked in water. I think that's where people have a problem with the whole baptism is necessary for salvation. Because they're thinking, well, I just got to get dunked in water to be in a club. That's nowhere near the idea that Paul teaches here. It's it's this washing that represents the new life. It is something that is, is crucially involved in the salvation of a person. And we could argue all day long about at what second is our soul saved. Is our soul saved the second we contact the water? Is our soul saved the second that we confess? Is our soul saved the second we repent? Because that's where we get into the whole, well, what if I walk down the aisle to get baptized and have a heart attack and die? When, when did Jesus come back to life? When he rose from the dead. Yeah. Baptism, according to the passage you read in Romans 6, verse 4, baptism is a resurrection from the dead. Mm-hmm. Now, it can't be a resurrection from the dead if you're already alive whenever it happens to you. If you're yeah. saved at the point of repentance, for example, and then you decide later on, because the church scheduled it way down the road, I'll be baptized in two months, you can't go along with Romans 6, 4 saying, I've risen from the dead. Some people say, well, that, that just symbolizing the rising, the resurrection that you've already had. But that, that's just not the way the Bible tells it. I mean, in yeah. every passage that we're reading here, it's it's a washing of belonging to the regeneration yeah. associated with the regeneration. You cannot separate the washing and the regeneration No, from now, reading the New Testament. The bab- you know, Peter says baptism saves you, 1 Peter 3.21, but he doesn't mean... He doesn't mean it's it's baptism, not the blood of Christ. What he means is that it's in baptism that you are saved because God brings you into contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ at that point. So we take that by faith. And that's the difference between doing a cannonball into a swimming pool and getting baptized. <laughs> I'm because, really glad you made that point. Yeah. yeah, the phrase in Peter, you know, I think sometimes it is used to say, hey, baptism saves you. you got to get in that water. You know, yeah. you got it because because it's the baptism that it's saves a little you. sound bite. You know, it's the it's the dunking that saves you. Well, and just like that's a perfect example. Cannonballing into a pool is in the most technical term of the word baptism uh, as immersion. That is immersion. A cannonball yeah. into a pool as long as you go under, that does not save you. So immersion alone does not save you. What yeah. saves you? It's all these pieces that we just mentioned. You know, it's it's the dying to self, being alive in Christ. It's repenting. It's believing. It's confessing, and it's putting Christ on in baptism, undergoing. And all of that is faith. All of that is faith. Yeah. Confession is faith. Repentance is faith. Baptism is faith. Faithful living is faith. It's depending on God instead of ourselves. But we the next phrase is probably harder than the one we've been talking about for 10 minutes, right? right? Renewal of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, piece of cake. Oh, yeah? Okay. You got it. <laughs> so um, easy, I'll let you handle it. Well, I notice in verse 6, after mentioning the renewal of the Holy Spirit, um, Paul says the Spirit was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So... What does he mean by us? And I believe that he means the same thing using the word us here that he means when he uses the word us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and following. Uh, There, our readers can go back and look at it. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it's about revelation, about um, where the word of God came from. And uh, Paul says, 
it was revealed. It, it, he says, it didn't come through my imagination. It didn't come through hearing. It didn't come through seeing. But it was revealed to us by the Spirit. And when he says that, the word us means Paul and the apostles. And we know that because of other passages of Scripture, like Acts chapter 2, like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that tell us that the Spirit... Uh, 1 Peter, also 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, the Spirit revealed the Word of God to the apostles and inspired writers of the New Testament, and then they in turn wrote what had been revealed to them by the Spirit. They wrote it down because the Spirit guided them into all the truth, John 16, 13. They wrote it down into the Word of God, and then Ephesians, I know I'm throwing out a lot of verses, but I want people to look these up. According to Ephesians 3, 1 through 5, we get that information whenever we read their insights in the Word of God. And so you have the Father giving the Spirit the Word, the Spirit revealing the Word to inspired men who wrote it down, and we receive the benefit of the Word of God when we read what has been written by these men. And that is how we're renewed. Uh, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17. So why, who are we to protest the Spirit using an instrument to get instruction into our hearts and renew them versus mysteriously doing it within us in a non-tangible way? Mm-hmm. I think people would prefer, I, I know people who would prefer to receive this renewal in a mysterious, miraculous manner, individual manner, I should say, too. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, well, there's just, so, so I think it's better to have it in writing. I mean, I know it's more sensational to get the word magically, mysteriously, miraculously, whatever word you want to use. But it's so subjective that way. That's what I was about to say. What's more trustworthy? An yeah. emotion or something that God has written down and said, hey, this is how it is. Because an emotion, like you said, I mean, how can you get more subjective than the way you feel? You know, there's, I'm, I'm reminded again of that passage in Jeremiah, is it Jeremiah 17, um, where he says, your heart is wicked, who can trust it? Or mm-hmm. along the right lines here. Basically, you can't even trust your own heart uh, because, uh, and I think we've used this illustration before, you know, just because I tell you uh, your house is on fire, you might believe with all your heart that that house is on fire, and you might feel really sad and say, man, I can, you know, I just feel that that house is burnt down. It feels terrible. Mm-hmm. And the next day I say, well, sorry, no, that wasn't your house. That was your neighbor. Mm-hmm. You know, that feeling you had is not any less real, but fact of the matter is the house still stands so the emotion you can have the emotion and the feeling of man i know i know i I feel this and i have felt it yeah but oh not everybody says they feel it some say that the spirit spoke to them and told them this or that or they'll say god told me go take that job or god told me get out of that house or what you know, there are all these little individual stories about how God gave them a special revelation that other people didn't use. I have, I mean, first of all, when somebody says that, they put you in the position of not being able to disagree with them because how am I going to tell them? You know what I mean? How am I going to say, now God didn't tell you that? Well, you, I wasn't there, I wasn't in yeah. their head, so they've got me cornered, you know. But I can say this when I read the Bible. First of all, there are some somewhat personal communications between God and people. But when God showed Jacob the vision of the ladder, that wasn't just for Jacob and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna, you're gonna be rich one day, and you're gonna have uh, wives and children, and you're you're really gonna like your life." Mm-hmm. That's not what that was about. Jacob's ladder was about. Jacob becoming the father of a nation that would bless all the nations of the earth when the Christ was born through them. And, you know, other visions. I mean, help me out. You know, people see 
in the Old Testament they see oh. these visions. Well, even just Joseph like direct communication. I mean, God directly communicated. I'm thinking of Hebrews one. How did He speak to? His well, people? I turned over there. Yeah, many long times, ago, many at ways. many times yeah. and in many ways, through the God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that's, I mean, that's correct. And yeah. speaking to them, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of some. At some point, He told, didn't He tell Jeremiah to go and, or not Jeremiah? Didn't He tell Elijah to go and hide by, was it some the river? What was the name of that brook? I can't remember told him to go hide basically in a certain spot and that he would take care of him. Now, that's something I can think of that was just Yeah, personal. just a direct thing. But it was all about advancing the nation of God. Yeah. It wasn't like, Elijah, you know, I'm going to be with you and going to make you a great athlete or I'm going to give you a great career. I guess not. Just, like, just for fun, I'm going to play the other side of this for a minute. Okay. So what if fine. I say, okay, well, God told me to be a great athlete for the purpose of advancing the kingdom. So I become a great athlete. I get all this influence, all this fame. And so now I have a platform to further the kingdom. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, where? how is that better than having the New Testament? Because <laughs> then, then you've got, okay, here's, oh, let's get back to the original discussion, which is what's better, written word or God talking through dreams, donkeys, um, what else? Uh, uh, direct communication, etc., etc., angels, etc., uh, yeah. etc. Et Which is better? Let's take your thing. So God makes you, what do you, what do you like, basketball, ping pong? What's your thing? If I could pick, probably golf. Golf. Wow. Okay, so Andrew's greatest wish in the world is to be good at golf. I mean, out of athletes, if I could pick to be one professional athlete, the best in the world. Yeah, it's pick golf. Either golf or like boxing or UFC fighting. <laughs> Nobody's gonna mess with you if you're the best. Let's go with golf. Yeah. Let's so go okay, golf. so you become a great golfer and you uh, get to wear the the Green pink jacket. shirts and the pink shirt, uh, the the little trousers that that no. have the elastic band around the knee. No, not wearing. And those. so you you get your little checkered hat on and you go out and you you play this great golf. You become famous. You got a big house. You got all this money, and and so now you're going to use that celebrity. Not without the word, you're going to use that celebrity to advance the gospel. Now my question is, what are you going to say? Yep. Yeah, you know. So <laughs> you subjectively pick what you're going to use that gift. To do, okay. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna, um, okay, that's... maybe do a lot of uh, philanthropy. You're gonna give a lot of money away. You're gonna build churches. You're gonna use, uh, you know, the bully pulpit. You, you're, you're famous, so people want to hear you talk. And when you come, you, you give a message about the gospel. But it's your version of it. And if nobody has the word as the one thing that ties us all together. We're going to get a very subjective thing from you. Think about a dream. So a lot of people are into dreams, and they believe that God is speaking to them through dreams. And in the Old Testament, he did speak to people through dreams. But if I had a dream of angels ascending and descending a ladder, and mm -hmm. the Father at the top of the ladder, I may not arrive at the same conclusion Jacob arrived at regarding that dream. If I had a dream, I mean, now Joseph's dreams are pretty obvious. I mean, there were just... Yeah. There were the, the same number of sheaves, sheaves, yeah, sheaves and stars as there were brothers and parents yeah. bowing down to him. Um, but still, you know, the, what, what about the Pharaoh's dream of the skinny cows and the fat cows and skinny ears of corn? Without the word spelling it out, we still don't know what these things mean. Yeah. So the word is objective. It's you can study it, you can copy it and pass it along, you can distribute it. And I guess we yep. should get back to the point of Titus 3.5, which is basically, you know, what it's saying is the Spirit renews us. We are saved through the washing of regeneration, and then after that, the constant renewal of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And that that's the bottom line. That's what he's saying. Yeah. 
And uh, to go back to the parallels, don't forget Ephesians 5.26 says the same thing, except instead of washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.26 says that uh, he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word. And I think that's probably the most powerful explanation because we, you yeah. know, we say the Bible is its own best commentary. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to discuss on this topic. Um, here's, a, here's a pretty good quote from Michael Moss, who's written a commentary on Titus. The Holy Spirit is the source of the new life in God, or is the source of the new life that God has made available to believers. So the Holy Spirit throughout um, throughout the New Testament is this agent that is heavily involved in salvation. It is something that, that the believers get. It is something that the believers possess. Um, so there's certainly this idea that the Holy Spirit is integral to the renewal of our minds. Um, and the way you can tell if we have this Spirit is if we're bearing the fruits of the Spirit, right? So the way you right. know you've got it isn't if you're uh, screaming and levitating off the ground. And uh, I, I, I watched this video the other day of um, like some of the most outlandish things. And there's this, there was a group that who so-called possessed by the Spirit were eating uh, snakes, eating snakes. Uh, Cooked or raw? Nope raw like wriggling around there you go pretty gross stuff but when you're talking about feelings it's so subjective you know and you can get into that group what's what's the term mob mentality yeah that everybody feels this way this must be the way it is so i think it's worse than that i think if if the renewal of the holy spirit was individual which is what we're saying i can get it apart from the word if it's individual then we'll have as many ideas as we have people in the church because yeah. it's so subjective. I don't I don't think that we would have a herd mentality. I think we would have mass division, which is what we have, you know, yeah. really in the church. Okay, yeah. let's uh you know, I knew we could do it. I knew we could talk for a long long time about just two things. And so Uh, We're going to take a little break and come back and make things practical for the last part of our podcast. Welcome back. Uh, We are ready to apply some of these things, and this is a very practical chapter so we should be able to find some really good lessons. We can't help we can't help but start with the idea of good works because it's such a big part of chapter 3 as it was chapter 2. Um, but you have all of these three basically three verses on good works that is that are just chock full of good information. Uh, starting in verse 1. He says be ready for every good work. So don't don't be reactive to everything, but be ready, be prepared when the good works are needed. Uh, one example here, we, uh, we signed up with Red Cross to be a shelter in times of natural disaster like a, a tornado mm-hmm. or some other thing coming through a fire. And uh, the Red Cross will give us a call if our community needs a shelter and we're all set up for that. We're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, in contrast to that, when the tornadoes came through in 2011, I remember, Andrew, you weren't living here at that time, but but I remember in Alabama, the tornadoes were hitting everywhere, and a lot of us just weren't prepared. And we tried to help, but we were several days late in getting started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have a plan. We did A lot of our folks did some really good things, but there were other groups that were prepared that were able to do even more. So yeah. that concept is really good about good works is that we should be ready for every good work. Yeah. Not just reactive, but ready. Yeah. I think and I found my sound bite there. Yeah. Don't be reactive. Be ready. That's the tweet. That's the promo That's tweet for this episode. Hang on. Let me jot it down. 
I've well, got these a, microphones break if I if I do a mic drop. Probably you'd have to idea. drop the whole little stand you've got hooked up. <laughs> that might be hard. It's Don't not be worth reactive. It. Um, be ready. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm literally writing that down. Uh, so, ready for the next one? Nope. So, I was okay. going to say something, but now I think I forgot what's going on. Okay. The next, yeah. So, the good works here. Uh, I think also it's good to point out that when we say be ready for every good work, every good work does not just involve every service project. Or like every person that needs help helping them, uh, I think that's yeah, that's impossible, right? Too. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying. I think it, the good works. This is a bigger scale than just service projects. I think it's good works. A service project is an example of a good work, but I think yeah. there are other things that are good works as well. Do you think it's telling us to be um, broad in our scope of what we can do? I think like, so. Like, so. I like, think a good work would be, you know, Titus teaching somebody. A good work yeah. would be Titus teaching older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. That's mm-hmm. a good work. Yeah. A good work was would be for Titus to show himself in all respects to be a, a model of good works, uh, to basically have his conduct under control. Mm-hmm. Good works being everything he does is under control whatever's noble whatever's good whatever's excellent yeah i that that definitely is included i also think about you know churches needing to be organized and all the all the good works that a church should do should be organized into the plan of the church so that the deacons can lead us in that direction whenever the need arises or even as they preemptively try to prevent problems within the congregation and in their community with their various ministries. Yeah. Look at verse 8 where he says, uh, those who believe in God must be careful to devote themselves to good works. So there's another idea is we as a church need to be devoted to this kind of thing. And I believe he says that again in verse 14, devote yourself to good works. I mean, that's more than just you know, I think we'll try this. Uh, this that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. It's as when you become a Christian, you must devote yourself locally in a local congregation to doing good works, yeah. and we all need to hold ourselves accountable to that and stir each other up to that. You know, yeah. Hebrews ten twenty four. Let's stir one another up to love and good works. Yeah, and so. Uh, that's another thing. Then you go down to verse 14, and I like this. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So it's not something that just comes naturally to every person. Uh, there's a learning curve there. You know, we've yeah. got to, we've got to, we're doing this right now. We've got to look at the Word of God and look at the practical things around us and learn how to be devoted to this so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So maybe there are a lot of needs that we don't need to be concerned about because they get in the way of the urgent needs. Yeah. Urgent needs being, number one, lost souls. Number two, the need of basic necessities of life, food, shelter, those kinds of things. Um, yeah. You know, not first world problems, as we call them sometimes. Yeah, uh, I really like this last phrase to not be unfruitful yes so he doesn't just say be fruitful which is this idea of hey do these good things make sure you're doing them uh be fruitful he says don't be unfruitful yeah which means be fruitful don't just be ready (laughs) yeah so don't just like prepare yourself to be fruitful say okay Mm -hmm. so now i have okay i've learned what it means to be fruitful I have trained my heart to be happy and excited and ready to do all these things. I have learned to devote myself. I have learned what it means to devote myself. I've learned how I can I can give you the the five R's of devotion and I can try to <laughs> I can try to work that out in my day to day life. I have all this information. Well what'd you do? Yeah. Where's the fruit? 
Because we can plan, I'm just talking the church, we can plan things to death, can't we? Oh, we do. We can sit around in meetings we do and plan. plan to death. Yeah, and write up the descriptions and packets and graphs and, you know, talk to these people and form committees. Yep. But is anything happening? That's, you know, that's the question. The bottom line. There's nothing wrong with committees and charts and graphs and all that stuff. The only time that gets wrong is when that gets in the way of us being fruitful. So being being fruitful as a congregation is not how many print out how many little printouts do I have of charts and graphs and how many committees do I have? That's not the measure of your your fruitfulness. The measure of your fruitfulness is well, how is how have I grown spiritually? How have I helped someone else grow spiritually? And obviously the have we brought any people in mm-hmm. have we actually made an impact on our community there's a lot of different ways you can have an impact on your community uh, certainly by getting out and doing good works is one of them but also by actually talking to people about Christ there's this uh, website it's just a parody of of like Christianity in America basically and it's really funny to go look at. One of the main headlines was Alabama woman seriously considers actually bringing up her faith to longtime friend. Yeah. And so, like, the article is just really cheesy about, you know, it's like, you know, I've been waiting for the perfect moment. I've been friends with this lady for 35 years, and I think it's yeah. finally going to come this weekend. I'm going to ask her to VBS. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's just sad because it's true. And, in, in many cases, but uh, it's really easy in our like consumer culture Christianity to 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 judge a church's merits based upon the the almost the professional nature of the church. Mm-hmm. How organized are they? How many charts and graphs? How many programs? How many events do they have in a year? Um, At first, I think when they when they come in and they meet and they ask questions and and that stuff is passed out, they're impressed. But I think after a year or two, most Christians, when they're sitting in a church and they can see that it's it's all talk and there's nothing being done, I think they get frustrated. In many cases, they leave. Yeah. And so I wish we could talk about that more, but we're almost out of time. And i got two more really yeah. good lessons wow. we got to talk about. Yeah, the, the second one, we won't spend a whole lot of time on it because it's, it's something we talked about before, and it's also pretty self-explanatory, but it is very powerful. And it's just about the transforming power of the gospel. Look at the difference between verse 3. I'm not going to read the list again, but all that, all that awful stuff in verse 3 about what we used to be. And verse 7, where we read that in Christ we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There are miles and miles. There, there is an infinity between verse 3 and verse 7. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the transforming power of the gospel is the only thing that can make that happen. Yeah. So yeah, let's go to is. number three. Okay. Yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah, We're I'm, I'm sorry. It's That's just, okay. we got to do this one. This is kind of a newer thing that I don't think we've covered too many times. Mm-hmm. And that is that churches must beware of all sin, but they need to beware of division in particular. Uh, so... I believe that Titus chapter 3, verse 10 is a neglected passage on church discipline. I'll read it again. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's just as much a passage on church discipline as Matthew 18, 15 through 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and Galatians 6, 1. Uh, there are a lot of passages on church discipline, which is why this one gets neglected so much. Yeah. And, you know, in First First Corinthians 5, Paul says division has, you know, two, basically two functions. Church discipline keeps the leaven out, and it saves the soul of somebody who has fallen into habitual sin. So it protects the church, and it protects the individual soul of the person who's lost in sin. And if one of those goals don't get done, at least you have the other one done. Yeah. Well, think about the leaven, and that's where he says, a little leaven leaveneth the, the whole lump of dough. Mm-hmm. 
Think about the leaven of a divisive person. How many divisive persons does it take to ruin a church? Where I'm talking about somebody week after week after week is trying to tear thing up, or to, just to use Paul's words, stir up division. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, so and, we're not talking about... Now I don't want to uh, get in get into this before you finish that thought, but we're not talking about just a disagreement, right? Right. No, disagreements are needed. Yeah. You know, we have to disagree or we become complacent and apathetic. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we got to do that. What you were, I think what you were saying about being, like you said, week in, week out, trying to cause problems, really doing what, uh, having foolish controversy, uh, these foolish genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law that are unprofitable and worthless. Right. So Somebody there are some disagreement that. that is profitable and worthwhile. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking yeah. about the division that is unprofitable and worthless. Yeah, I do think... So on the one side of this, we need to be careful not to be like the angry, divisive person. But then I do think there's another side of this that says, hey, don't be afraid to disagree just because you feel like you're being divisive. You know, there mm-hmm. is there's definitely a way to disagree without being divisive. Yeah. You know, you can disagree definitely. with somebody and go to them and you know, explain your concern or explain your viewpoint without being, you know, this kind of uh, quarreling and those sorts of things that are involved with these mm-hmm. guys that Titus is supposed to not be like. Have you ever heard of a case where a church went through the formal process of church discipline with a person who is divisive? I have not. No, usually it's over kind of socially taboo things. Yeah, and, I, and I'm talking about the whole formula. You know, um, it's it's here very briefly in Titus 3, but in Matthew 18, you go to him in private first, then you take two or three witnesses, then you tell it to the church, and then you withdraw from or have nothing to do with him, as uh, Paul says in Titus 3. Do we do that with divisive people? Now, we may do that with somebody who has committed adultery. We may do that with somebody who hasn't been present in services. So we withdraw fellowship from somebody who's already withdrawn from us. I hear those probably the, the most common offenses that people conduct church discipline on. But do we in, do we um, intervene when somebody's just being divisive and say, "Look, you know this is sinful, this is unprofitable and worthless. Please stop. You know we need yeah. peace, we need harmony, we need uh, unity." And then when he doesn't stop, you take two or three witnesses and you try to settle the deal. When that doesn't work, you get the elders involved, maybe, or you tell it to the church. I don't see that happening. I think a lot of times when things happen, it's the the divisive person who's the last person standing when the smoke clears. Yeah. I'm not talking about anything in particular. We're we're um, blessed to be a part of a very unified church at the moment, and uh, but we always need to be ready. And uh, right now, we need to make a division between this podcast and the rest of our lives because <laughs> it's time to end. We're, nice. we're out of time. So There's your closing line every week. I think you just found it. Well, you know, at this present time, I should have said make a division between this podcast and lunch because I'm starving. That's more like it, yeah. And uh, I bet this mic has picked up my stomach growling. Oh, I hope point. not. When we first started this, it did. your stomach, and I couldn't quit laughing. Yeah, we had to re-record it, right? Yeah, we had to do it over because I was giggling. Yeah, there was a stomach growl. Yeah, so we're done with Titus. Podcast. Yeah, we're done with Titus. Uh, I don't know how much time we have left. None. Um, any comments on... Uh, I think it's a very practical book, and I like it because it's a rare moment where an apostle is giving a preacher a list of things to preach. Yeah. And so that's always been fascinating to me. I've actually looked at this... Uh, especially chapters two and three, and looked at it and kind of used it as as a source material for sermon topics. Yeah. Like you know, this is what preachers ought to be preaching. So yeah, I I like it. I think it's unique in that way. Yeah, I think it's unique for really the same reasons. It's really interesting to look and see what advice Paul would give to some folks who are basically going to be taking up his mantle. Yeah, you know, that's really neat. Yeah. Um, 
Let's skip all the contact information and just say this. We don't know what we're going to do next. It'll be a book of the Bible. It's going to be in the Bible. It's not going to be one of the ones we've already done. We don't know what it's going to be, but we do know this. You're going to like it.